Matthew chapter 16 from verse 13. Now I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Now this evening we come to take up the threads once again of our studies in the Gospel according to Matthew. In a sense, in one sense, <clears throat> where we stopped five or six weeks ago was not a good position to stop, and yet in another way perhaps it was very much in the Lord's ordering because there is a sense in which we have reached the heart of the Gospel according to Matthew. And what I said in the last study on the <coughs> verses 13 to uh, 20 I think does in fact require in some ways a break. It is very easy just simply to take in what is said and then rumble on like tanks. Um, on to the next study and the next study and the next study. And whilst there is value in something consecutive, uh, there is also often a loss. 
Now this evening we come to take up those threads again. We are in the third major division of the Gospel according to Matthew. This one here, um, the realization of the kingdom to be through Calvary. That begins at Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 and continues to the 46th verse of the 25th chapter. That's the great division that we have commenced to study um, now. And you will see that there on that um, chart there are two subheadings. The first is the matter that we dealt with in the last of our studies before I went to Austria, um, the revelation of God's eternal purpose and objective. And the second is the one we're going to deal with tonight, the way to the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. Now there is a sense in which the Gospel according to Matthew has two great hinges upon which the whole book is built. The first you will find in chapter 4, and um, if I am right, I think it's verse 12. Just wait. Verse 12. No, it's not verse 12. Verse 17. From that time began Jesus to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's one of the great hinges upon which the uh, gospel according to Matthew turns. The second is here in this portion we're going to deal with tonight in verse 21. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. These are the two great hinges upon which the gospel according to Matthew uh, turns. Now we have dealt with um, these the first few verses of this division from verse 13 to verse 20 and we have entitled it the revelation of God's eternal purpose and objective. Now you will forgive me this evening if I go back for just a moment and seek to condense in five or so minutes um, that study. It is all important because there is no point in me talking about the way to the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose and objective, if some of you are not clear as to what that objective is. What is God's eternal purpose? Why has God saved us? Why was there a Calvary? Why did the Son of God come into this world? Why are you here tonight? Why are you studying the Bible? Is it because we've been saved to serve? Is that God's eternal purpose? Can we explain it in that very simple and popular evangelical cliché? Or is it, shall we put it another way, is the eternal purpose of God the salvation of God? Uh, in other words, was it in God's mind to save us? Uh, we can argue for that. 
Was it God's eternal purpose, therefore, uh, just to uh, send the Son into the world, to be the Saviour of the world? If once we get to that point, we come to the, to the dangerous shoals of whether God was in fact the author of the fall and whether he was the author of sin and much else. Uh, what is the salvation of God, the eternal purpose of God? Now I think we have to be very clear here. Because many, many Christians have absolutely no idea as to the objective of their salvation. They have no idea as to the goal of their salvation. Now, this evening, because I am summing up um, the last um, study, I can be much freer because I, uh, it's not in the notes. Hmm. Um, so I can be very free this evening and say a lot of things I didn't say last time. Uh, now, one of the things I'd like to say is this. Why did Paul write that chapter that we now know as Philippians chapter 3? Why? I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? Why does Paul say he counts everything but loss? Why does he say that I may know him? Why does he say that I may win him? Why does he say that I may be found in him? He spent letters telling us that he already knows him. That it is possible to know him now through the saving grace of God. He has spent letter, a whole letter in the Romans explaining to us the absolute security of our salvation. We are already placed in Christ. Then why does he say that I may be found in him? And then he tells us again that um, we have God, God is Christ, un, uh, Christ is God's unspeakable gift. Why therefore does he say that I may win him? And then why does he say, I press on, that I may take hold of that for which I have been taken hold of? What is the thing that he is going to take hold of? And now we say to Paul, if we had him here, now you are completely bewildering us. You are confusing us. After all the things you've written, you seem now to be contradicting them. And if, are you saved? Yes, he would say, I am saved by the grace of God. Then we would say, is Christ in you? Yes, he says, Christ is in me and he is the hope of glory. I said that in Colossians 1 verse 27. <laughs> then we would say to him, well now we want to ask you a few more questions. I mean, um, um, what is this? What do you mean if you are saved that I may lay hold on that for which I have been laid hold on? In other words, when God saved me, he had an objective. His salvation wasn't his objective. He saved me with an objective in view. What is the objective? He took hold of me, says Paul. Now I'm taking hold of him for the ob that I may realize and come to the objective for which he took hold of me. It's simple. <laughs> So he says, I press on toward the mark, uh, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is that goal? What is that 
pride. Why has God gone to all this bother? What is it that's in his heart? Well, the last study we had together, it was this very thing that we considered. For there is a very true way in which we can say that this 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew is the Holy of Holies. It is as if um, the Lord Jesus, uh, as it were, lifts the veil uh, for us to see. Well now, what is it? What is this eternal purpose and objective of God which he reveals? Well, we have it in Matthew chapter 16 and in the very well-known words, verse 18, Upon this rock I will build my church. There in that simple statement you have the objective of God. Upon this rock I will build my church. And I have added to that the other statement, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. I will give unto thee the keys. I will give unto thee the keys. And in a sense you've got concentric rings. You have Christ at heart, then you have the church, then you have the kingdom, and then beyond that, everything else. Christ at the heart, and the church in him and he in them. And then beyond that, the kingdom, bigger than the church. And then beyond that, everything. If you can so put it like that, in one sense. Out of darkness, if you like, whatever you like to call it. Now, what is this objective then of God? Is it a system? God is, is God uh, interested in creating a system? A religious system? An organization? An institution? What is it that God has in his heart? What does God mean by the word church? For we have got so many extraordinary ideas that have come to be associated with the word church. We think of a building. We think of a building perhaps with a steeple. Or we think of a building that is used for religious purposes. We speak of going to church and uh, so on. Uh, we say, I met so-and-so in church today. Or um, all these kind of phrases which we don't find in the Bible at all. What is the church? The church is simply, basically, Christ himself. It is that you and I are in him and he is in us. And that a, 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 an eternal union has taken place between God and you and you and God. And therefore between you and me and me and you. In other words, God in his grace has put us all in the one Christ. And he has put the one Christ in all of us. So there you have a twofold unity, a double unity. God is not interested in so much a system or an organization. Later on in our studies we shall have to deal with something of the earthly aspect of this. But the point is this, the church, the eternal church, that God has always had in his heart to have, which is called by various names, 
But perhaps the most beautiful of all is the description, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the bride of the Lamb, the wife of the Lamb. Here then you have, in a simple term, what has always been in God's heart from the beginning. Before there was a fall, before there was sin, before the devil entered in, before all that, God had a, a conception, a mind, an idea for the human race. His idea was that we who were created for God, we human beings who were created with a capacity for God, that God should enter into us and we should enter into God, and that a union should take place, so that we became united to God and God to us. And that is what God calls his dwelling place. God doesn't dwell in houses of bricks and mortar. God doesn't dwell in systems or organizations. God dwells in human beings. That's what God means by the church. And therefore this word church, ecclesia, is the called out ones. Or um, those who are being called out. Now we have to be just a little careful of that, uh, that we don't put the whole emphasis on the negative side and just understand that God is calling out from all nations and tongues and kindreds, from sin, from darkness, from this world, from, from evil, just calling out to people. You see, there is a positive side to it. God has called us out of this world and into so in that letter in which the Apostle Paul deals most fully with this subject, the first letter uh, of the Corinthians, he says at the very beginning of it these words, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into the fellowship of his Son. Not fellowship with his Son, but the fellowship of his Son. The word is partnership in his son, participation in his son, sharing his son. The word is koinonia. It just simply means that somehow or other we have all been called to be participants in God's Christ. That is not to take away from his unique glory or his unique position. But in the grace and in the mercy of God, he has called you and I to be part of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have become the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you like to put it in very crude terms, we have become the extension of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's eternal purpose and objective. This is the thing that God is driving at. It is the secret of all history. And furthermore, it is the secret of both Old Covenant and New Covenant. The elect people of God under both the Old and the New. So at the end of the Bible you have a city and that city uh, we understand to be the very dwelling place of God. It is like an electric light bulb. It is filled with blazing glory. Radiance, absolute radiance of glory having the glory of God. There is no need of sun, there is no need of moon, because God is the light and the Lamb is the lamp thereof. Now, when you turn off uh, the electricity, you can see a transparent bulb. 
electric light bulb. You can see it quite clearly. There it is in all its naked ugliness. Uh, I don't think there's anything beautiful about uh, an electric light bulb, really. Um, there it is. You see it. Fit it into the lamp. Turn on the switch. Put on the switch. And suddenly there is a blaze of light. What has happened to the shape? <laughs> the shape is still there. The glass is still there, but you can't see it. It's lost in a blaze of glory. Now, this city is rather like that. It is, we are told, made of gold and precious stone and pearl, but the gold is so refined that it is transparent as glass. So that from end to end, the glory of God shines through it, and everything is lost in the radiance of God's manifested presence. You see, a glory isn't a thing, it's a person. It is just the very presence of God manifested. Now that city which Abraham sought, we are told in Hebrews 11, he sought for that city which has the foundation, uh, that city that the people, all the saved people of God under the old covenant sought for, that city that we have been told, ye have come unto Mount Zion, uh, and so on in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, that city, we are told, has gates. And on the gates are written the names of the twelve apostles. Those twelve apostles represent the elect, the saved people of God of the new covenant. But we are told that the foundations of the city are which are twelve are written the twelve names of the tribe of Israel, the twelve patriarchs, uh, which symbolize for us the people of God under the old covenant. So at the very end of the Bible, you have this objective of God realized. And in almost the last verses of the Bible, we have that wonderful little phrase, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. It's an extraordinary statement. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Bible opens with the Holy Spirit hovering over a chaotic void. No light, no life really, just chaos, confusion, darkness. The Bible ends with the Holy Spirit in perfect rest, with the object of everything at his side. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Symbolically, it speaks of the objective and purpose of God absolutely secure. Now, the book of Revelation begins with seven churches which are, which are selected to be representative of all the churches on earth. There is the church here, and there's the church there, and there's the church there, and there is the church there. With all their sin and all their failing, they are true functioning churches which is more than we can say for many places today. They have not yet departed from the foundation, although upon that foundation there is much that, the, that, that uh, is uh, bad. Now the Lord speaks of those um, uh, churches, and he says that there are seven golden lampstands or candlesticks, as it puts in the authorised version. More correctly, lampstands, as in the revised 
version and the Revised Standard Version. Now then, some of you have asked me more about the lampstand, and I'm not going to spend this evening talking about the lampstand, but I am going to just say this for, you, for anyone who would like to think about it and explore it in the Word of God. You want to know what does the Lord mean when he says, I've set before thee a golden lampstand. What does it mean in that chapter in Zechariah about the golden lampstand? Well, it is a very interesting fact that it cannot just be simply the church. Because the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, I will remove thy lampstand from its place. I take it that the services, even the prayer meetings, the whole thing will rumble on. But the candlestick's gone. Been removed. What is that lampstand? That lampstand is in fact the symbol of God's objective. It is the symbol of the heart, the passion of God's heart. In other words, to have something in which he dwells and is found. I'm going to put it into an altogether different way. It may not quite be connected in your mind at any rate with the golden lampstand, but it's the same thing God was in one way trying to get over to Moses when he met him in the burning bush. You see, it is as if God somehow or other is just trying to put this thing over to us all the way through the Bible. He has saved us with a purpose. We've not just been saved to sing hymns. <laughs> saved to say a few prayers. Saved to read the Bible. Saved even just to witness. We have been saved to become participants in God's very life and nature. So that we become the complement of God, the very dwelling place of God, not for just a phase, not for just a stage, not even for a dispensation, but for eternity. And it is one, I think, of the most, to me, the most comforting facts in the whole of the Bible that God says so little about eternity. Some people don't find it the least bit comforting. I personally find it very comforting. You see, we have so many problems about eternity, haven't we? At least if you think. We've got a lot of problems about it. What are we going to do? No night. <laughs> no sort of breaking up. No seasons in one sense. No sea. I mean, what are we going to do in eternity? Uh, sort of endless... Well, I was going to say endless time, but of course it's not such a thing as time. I mean, it's just endlessness. What are we going to do? Now, the whole point is this. God has never, ever said what he intended to do if man had never sinned. And even this objective which God has is the beginning of something, not the end. In other words, when God has got man where he should have been at the very beginning, if he'd only taken up the tree of life, and become the very bride of God's son at the very beginning, then God had a purpose. We don't know. It's contained in some of those prophecies which speak about the trees clapping their hands and all kinds of things, about the natural creation being subject to bondage, the bond subject to bondage to corruption, and all kinds of strange, mysterious uh, kind of words that, that make you wonder, well, what was God, what, what is God up to? 
Well, now, when a couple get married, normally speaking, we consider it to be a beginning, not an end. <laughs> normally. One or two cases we might think differently. But uh, generally speaking, we feel that when a couple get married, that's not the end. That's the beginning. It's the end of one phase in their relationship. It's the beginning of something new. When people get married, they get married to set up a home. There's a purpose in their marriage. There's something that lies ahead. There's a future. Why does God put all this in the symbol of, of, of the wife of the Lamb? And furthermore, dear child of God, remember this, that even if you are filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory tonight, you are only betrothed. You are only engaged. You've not yet been married. That's coming. So when you do have those times of joy unspeakable and full of glory, just remember that. If such a touch from God can be so glorious and so wonderful and we're only engaged, what will it be when the marriage has taken place? <laughs> when the wedding feast of the Lamb is past, and when we go out into eternity together. God, in his mercy, has not bothered our heads with what he's going to do. He has just simply said, I want you, and I want you to want me. That's all he said. But he has given enough indications to us to understand that if we are prepared to go the way, the only way to the fulfillment of his objective, it will be unutterable glory. He that loseth his life, the same shall gain it. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. You see, there's just these little asides, not enough to overwhelm us, but just enough to keep faith alive. So that we walk by faith, the certainty of faith, and not by the certainty of fear. We understand that one day when that marriage feast has taken place and sin is a, is a past thing, the whole sinful history and story of this fallen world and of this fallen man is over and done with, then we understand that God will get on with the job. But we don't know what the job is. So think about it. Just think about it. If you ever think, or ever tempted to think that heaven will be boring, my dear friend, it will be the one place on... I was going to say on earth. <laughs> <laughs> that will not be boring. Heaven won't be boring at all. Not with our God. Well, now then, enough of that. That, really, I said was going to be five minutes and turned into half an hour. Um, that was really just a little. We've covered a lot more, but I hope that it will help you to understand what this is, the revelation of God's eternal um, purpose and objective. Upon this rock I will build my church. He is the rock. And he played on that thought, uh, rock and you are rock. 
That is, somehow or other, you're going to be quarried out of me and built on me. We're living stones built on the one foundation. All right. Now, this evening, let us move on to this next little portion. I have deliberately, this evening, not don't intend to go beyond it. These few verses from verse 21 to 28, seven verses, which along with these other verses from 13 to 20, another seven verses, are the very heart of this gospel. The way to the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. Now, I want to put it like this. How could such a purpose, such an objective, be secured? How is it possible for fallen man, controlled and enslaved by the powers of darkness and evil, by Satan himself, fathered by, by the devil, how could it possibly be that those fallen men and women could be delivered and brought into God's kingdom? And more than that, how could this church, which is the objective of God, be obtained and um, completed? How is it possible? In these few verses, these seven verses, Christ begins clearly now to reveal the only way such a purpose could be secured. Calvary was the only way. Now, if you take your Bible, I want to read to you uh, a, a few scriptures. Calvary was the only way that that purpose of God could be fulfilled and that objective realized. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 12 giving thanks unto the Father who made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. Think of that phrase. Who delivered us out of the power or authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 20. And through Christ to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things upon the earth or things in the heavens. And you, being in time past alienated and enemies in your mind, in your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. Then I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Did you get that? It's through the cross that God has done this tremendous thing of taking us, delivering us out of the power of darkness and translating us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. To reconcile all things through the cross, the blood of the cross. Now, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you, did he make alive when ye were dead through your trespasses and sins? 
wherein ye once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have ye been saved. Tremendous, isn't it? Made us alive together with Christ. Now, Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. The last part, part of verse 5. Unto him, that is Christ, that loveth us. And now mark the rendering of the American Standard Version. Listen to this. Unto him that loveth us and loosed us from our sins in his blood. And made us to be a kingdom, to be priests unto his God and he not only loved us, but he loosed us from our sins in his blood and then made us to be a kingdom and priests unto his Father. It was the cross again, the blood of his cross. It is summed up, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. We preach Christ crucified unto Jews a stumbling block and unto Gentiles foolishness but unto them that are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified the power of God the wisdom of God. Calvary was the only way that sinful man could be delivered and brought into God's kingdom. It was the only way that the church could be obtained and built and perfected. And Calvary was the only way God's original purpose at the very beginning, before the creation of man, could in fact be realized and secured. Now, it is because of this, because it is the only way, and because the Lord Jesus now begins to explain that this is the only way that God's uh, eternal purpose and objective can be realized and secured, it is because of this that Oh, in the light of it, shall I put it that way? In the light of that, we can understand Christ's seemingly severe words to Peter. Some of us, I suppose, perhaps all of us at one time or another, do, when we think about it, just wonder how it is that um, uh, the Lord was quite so severe with Peter. After all, when someone talks about death and starts talking in a gloomy way, our first reaction is to say, oh, never. Never. 
It's just a normal, natural reaction. If you'd heard someone you love saying, well, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I've got to be scourged and beaten and, and despised and spat upon and then I'm, I'm going to be delivered up and crucified and on the third day raised, wouldn't you be horrified? He'd not really talked about this kind of thing before. They'd got their eye fixed in their minds, some glorious intervention of God. When Peter got on his knees and said, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he, 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 was, he had in his mind angelic intervention, sovereign, divine intervention that was going to display the power of God and set back these Romans, these, these uncircumcised uh, Romans and... and, and, and and bring in the millennial kingdom, bring in the Messiah's kingdom and, and glory, restore to Israel her sovereignty and her glory. Now the Messiah, just confessed, is talking about being scourged and beaten and crucified. Now, we had about the word crucified a kind of religious, sentimental feeling. Uh, to the Jew, there was nothing but abject horror. It's rather like if I were to say to you, the gas chamber, or the guillotine, we would immediately, never, God's Messiah, the gas chamber, never, Never. What? Judicially judged? And executed? Never. Now, the natural reaction surely is to rise up and say, Lord, do be quiet. I was always going to say what I think I would have probably said, Lord, shut up. Be quiet. Shh. I want any more talk like that, Lord. Terrible. No more talk. It's all Peter did. He got a very severe rebuke. The Lord said, Get thee behind me, Peter. No. Get thee behind me, sinner. No. Get thee behind me, Satan. Terrible. Now, if you understand it in the light of what I've just said, you will see that it wasn't so hard. In fact, more far from it being hard, I have no doubt that in the end, Peter remembered it with joy. You see, the seeming severity of Christ's words was simply because um, Peter was seeing it from man's point of view. In the authorised version, it puts it like this. Thou art an offence to me. Thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. The revised version, and the American Standard Version put it like this, Thou art a stumbling block to me. Thou mindest not the things of God, but of men. The New English Bible puts it like this, You're a stumbling block. You think as man thinks, not as God thinks. The Moffat puts it like this, 
You're a stumbling block. Your outlook is not God's outlook, but man's. And then the Revised Standard Version puts it, you are a stumbling block. You are not on the... No, you are a hindrance. You are not on the side of God, but of man. Now put all those together. Thou savorest not the things of God, but those that be of men. Thou mindest not, thou mindest not the things of God, but of men. Your outlook is not God's, but man's. You think as men think, not as God thinks. You are not on God's side, but man's side. Now, is it not this very mentality in us Christians the people of God, that has crippled the work of God right down through the ages, till this day. This very mentality is in you and me. Get out of the cross. Bypass the cross. Even if we will accept the salvation of the cross, bypass it as a means to an end. Bypass the cross. Bypass the price. Lord, never. Surely there's an easier way. Surely there's an easier way. You know, let me put it this way. We are all people for shortcuts, aren't we? Especially in the 20th century. We all believe in shortcuts. If there is a shorter way of doing something, we can get through quicker with less trouble, less cost. That's the way uh, we want. Now then, you see, the Lord puts his finger upon this very thing. It is not Satan inside the church or inside the work of God which has crippled it and hindered it. Satan is powerless to hinder the work of God. For the Lord Jesus has just said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. In other words, the church is invincible. The work of God is invincible. Even when the enemy presses it, presses it down, it comes out on top. It is invincible. It is not Satan, in, uh, Satan outside the church, outside the work of God that is the problem, it is the natural mind in us, within the church, within the work of God, that is the crippling and paralyzing and frustrating thing in the way of God. I can't put it more simply. The Lord Jesus put it in his own word. It's a stumbling block. When I think of the committees and boards and councils and palaver that goes on amongst us Christians. All the, I'm not saying that God can't get through a council or a committee any more than, uh, than he can get through a diaconate or elders or anything else. Whenever, as once Lindsay Clegg said, whenever you put men's heads together, you get one board. Always the same. Uh, if, uh, if once you start to to somehow substitute for the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, our heads, we have a blockage. It's very simple. Once the natural mind takes over, once it's spiritual politics, <laughs> once, it's, once it's spiritual diplomacy, 
somehow or other we just start to think now and then, now and then. The great thing is, sanctify common sense. This is a great word. Oh, there's nothing like common sense. But common sense is an extremely rare thing. When it is sanctified, it is glorious. But most of the sanctified common sense we hear about is nothing less than the natural mind having a right in the things of God. That's all. Just simply having its own way. And that's why we're paralyzed. Now, my dear friend, I'm on very strong ground in what I say, even if you don't like it. I'm on very strong ground in what I say. Because in the early church, we had just a bunch of fishermen. No great councils, no great committees, no great sort of wealthy people pouring money in, no such thing. Just a handful of people, 120 and up, upper room, and I don't suppose we would have actually given a penny for most of them. Ordinary, insignificant, worthless people. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they dynamite the Roman Empire. From end to end. How could they tell it? And here we are. Look at us in the 20th century. We say the world's indifferent. We say it's apathetic. We say it's hard. Look at us. There are thousands and thousands of us Christians. We've got airplanes, television, radio, printing presses. I don't know what we've got. <laughs> we've got all kinds of things, haven't we? And we fail to turn the world upside down. It seems today to be so extraordinary that if someone with a slightly twisted background gets saved, he's shoved on a platform straight away. It is so extraordinary. My dear friend, in the early church, if they'd done it, they wouldn't have had enough room on the platform. <laughs> so many people were saved from twisted, perverted backgrounds. It was, in fact, the general thing. The church wasn't just a respectable middle-class uh, affair. It was, in fact, God, by his Spirit, working powerfully and dynamically in men and women of all types and sorts. Well, it all comes back to this. It's the natural mind. When the flesh gets in, it can be cultured flesh, refined flesh, intelligent flesh, educated flesh. It may be very, very clever flesh, but it's flesh. I suppose sometimes it's better to have that kind of flesh than the other kind, I don't know. But it's still flesh, whether it's uncultured or cultured, ignorant or educated, it's still flesh. And it's the greatest problem that God can face. Satan is no problem to God. No problem. The Lord Jesus is far above him, seated at the right hand of God the Father. My dear, dear child of God, the problem is you and me. We are God's supreme problem. God's supreme problem. Well, I say that's why the Lord Jesus said you're a stumbling block get thee behind me Satan Phillips puts it I think in a very electric way he puts it like this you stand right in my path when you look at things from man's point of view and not from God's I repeat that you stand right in my path 
when you look at things from man's point of view and not God's. God's people are without doubt God's greatest hindrance. For Calvary is the only way God can save us and make us part of his Christ members, as it were, members, limbs of his own body. He does it through Calvary. That's why the Lord was so severe with Peter. It was as if Peter, because, because his sentiment got on top, because his natural feelings came to the fore immediately, as with all of us. His common sense, that's all, just common sense. He flung himself on the Lord and said, Never, God forbid. The Lord said, Peter, you're a stumbling block. This kind of thing is a stumbling block. You want to get into the kingdom? You want to become part of this church? You want to be a member of my body in the end? Then, dear Peter, there's only one way. You can't stop me. You mustn't stand in my path. There's only one way. But I would like to say more than that. It's not just a question of getting us saved. So glorious is this union which God has achieved through the work of Calvary, Christ's work on Calvary, that it is, it, it's a vital union with God. So tremendous is the nature of that union that in Ephesians 2, 6 we are spoken of as being seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. Seated with him. Already we're reigning with him. So that in that vision in the book of Revelation it says, and they reign upon the earth. It's already started. Spiritually the reign has started. The union is so tremendous that because the head is on the throne, we reign. Because we're the body, we're joined to the head, we reign. <coughs> so it is not only that we are saved through Calvary, for if that union with Christ is to be a living, practical reality. And I think all of you realize that the Christian life is nothing without union with Christ. It is all up here. It is just glorious ideal. Wonderful principle. And no practical reality. It is that union with Christ which is, which is the, which gives the living, practical reality to all that we read in the Bible. And what is the church in concrete terms? If it is not union with Christ, the church isn't that we just come together and meet. Anyone can do that. Stamp collectors can do that. Anyone can do it. You can have a membership role, you can have a collection, you can have special business meetings, you can have uh, uh, a board of, 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 of administrators and all the rest of it. Is that the church? Never. Church may have to have certain functions and certain offices and all the rest of it. That is another matter. But principally, supremely, the church is an organic thing. It's a living thing. It's a question of being in union with Christ. Because you are in union with Christ, I am in union with Christ. We are in union with one another. We are in a union. We are in an entity. We are part of Christ. We are members of Christ and therefore members one of another. 
It's as simple as that. Because my fingers are members of my body. They belong to my feet. <laughs> they do not belong to one's feet. <laughs> um, his fingers belong to his feet. Why? Because they're in his body. My fingers are in my body. They belong to my feet. My feet, my fingers belong to each other. My whole body belongs uh, to each other. All the members belong to each other. Why? Because they're in my body. They're in a, in a, in a living unity. An organic entity. And so it is with the church. You see, if this union with Christ on the personal level, which is the Christian life, and on the corporate level, which is the church, is to become a living, practical reality, then we must know the cross in our daily experience. And that's why the Lord Jesus said in verse 24, straight after this matter of uh, Peter being a hindrance, he says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and he, whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. It is God's only way to kingship. You see, there is an idea prevalent amongst Christians that just because we're all saved, one day we're all going to have crowns. It is a false idea. You know the idea, well I'm saved so one day I'm going to have a golden crown on my head. It's quite false. Saved you are and saved you will be. But have you never heard what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that you can be saved so as by fire? So that you scrape into the kingdom of God by the grace of God? There's an idea prevalent that we shall all sit on thrones. Who said that? Lord Jesus has never said it. He has been at pains in parables and in his clear teaching and in all the teaching in the epistles to explain to us that if we would reach the throne we must go the same way the Master went. Tis the way the Master went. Shall not the servant tread it still? If you want to reach the throne, there's only one way to reach the throne. You do it the way the Master did it. You let go. How did he get to the throne? How has he got a name which is above every name? It's all in Philippians chapter 2. That although he was on an equality with God, he did not grasp that position. He humbled himself. He let go, and he let go, and he let go, and humbled himself to the death, yea, the death of the cross, wherefore God also highly exalted him and has given unto him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. It is the way the Master went. The Gospel according to Matthew is all about kingship and the kingdom. And here we are at the heart of the matter. If the king obtained the kingdom through letting go, through the cross, then every single person in that kingdom who comes to his throne must go the same way. Now let me put you right, in case you think I'm a Roman Catholic on this matter, that whatever, whatever you may feel, just 
put it on one side for one moment, just listen to this and think about it. God's grace has saved you. It is God's grace that opens the door to potentialities incredible, beyond description. If one day you're crowned, it will be the grace of God. If one day you sit in his throne, it will be the grace of God. If one day you overcome, so that he can say, you sit down with me in my throne, it's the grace of God. It is the fact that you positively took hold of the word of God and were obedient to it and sought God's grace to go through. Isn't that true? Can any man or woman deny themselves? We are self-centered creatures. The deepest instinct of our being is self-preservation. Here comes the Lord and says to us, Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. He that loseth his life, the same shall find it. We can't do it. It's an instinct within us stronger than anything else. And sometimes we want to, but we can't. But if we take hold of the grace of God, we can. When God opens our eyes to what the Lord Jesus did on the cross, when God opens our eyes to the fact that in Christ we were crucified, in him we were buried, in him we were raised, when that becomes a living reality, then, then and only then, can we deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. He that loseth his life, the same shall find it. It's God's only way to kingship. It is God's only way to true authority. Some people seem to think, I'm not meaning just here, but amongst us and everywhere, that authority is something that drops upon you out of heaven. That you can have uh, a momentary experience and suddenly you become authoritative, powerful. My dear friend, it's a fallacy. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ was vested in his inherent nature that he could let go all the way. Never forget that he laid his glory by before he was born. He entered into this world with an authority that came out of the way of the cross. The cross was in Christ before ever he came to it. That's the kind of authority that is divine authority. It is not grabbing, grasping, it's not the kind of thing that's cheap. It just comes easily. It is authority that comes out of a character. Authority that comes out of not something that is self-centered, but something that is God-centered. That's the way to authority. That is the way to power. Otherwise, your experience of power will be transient. You shall have power and it will pass from you as quickly. But if you want real power with God, you must be like Jacob. 
who was crippled at the fort of Jabbok and was told, you are now a prince with God and with men. That's the cross. It was a permanent experience. And then again, if you want to get to the throne, if you want to get to the crown, if you want to get to the bride, if you want to get to the glory, of God in that way, that full way, I don't just mean an initial way, but in a full way. The way, Calvary. And the Bible is full of it. Go back and read your Bible. Go back and read the epistles. If we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. And so it goes on, letter after letter, portion after portion. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Whilst we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. To know the cross in experience is to be on God's side. Otherwise, though we're saved, we are a continual hindrance to him. We are in his path. We know it all. Oh, God preserve us. We know it all. So many of God's children don't know uh, the eternal purpose and objective of God. That's a tragedy. But there is a double tragedy. Many who do know, do not know in experience the way to its fulfillment. I think there is nothing more terrible than to know God's purpose and objective and to be able to talk about it and preach about it and do many other things, but you don't know in experience the way to it. Clanging cymbal, or oh, noisy gong, empty drum, that's all. You see, we know it all, but we block his way continually. It's just us. It is the losing of our lives that is the price. And if we are honest, this is the thing that we all shrink. Because it is not a thing that can be done in a moment. We come to it. By the grace of God we come through. And then we find a year or so later we're back again. Facing it on a deeper level. Losing our lives. He that loseth. Not he who has lost. He that loseth his life. The same for that. We have to lose it. And lose it. And lose it. But every time we lose it, we gain. That's the whole principle. And that's what the Lord Jesus is trying now to explain to his disciples. He's unveiled to them, he's revealed to them the, uh, the eternal purpose and objective of God. Now he seeks to show that the only way to achieve that end, to secure that, that objective, for the fulfillment of that purpose, is through Calvary. And in the end, it is the losing of our lives, personally and together, which determines everything, whether on a personal or a corporate level. Do you know, dear child of God, I think a lot of your problems and my problems would be solved tonight if it dawned on us. There are people 
here and elsewhere, all the time trying to seek a shortcut. There are no shortcuts. Settle it. God has no shortcuts. His only shortcut is to lose your life. That is his only way to glory. Settle it. Otherwise, you become a plaything for the enemy. You are seeking an experience that somehow or other will deliver you from the discipline of the cross. Will deliver you from facing yourself. Oh, dear friend, it happens again and again amongst us Christians. We're wanting something that will just somehow be a spiritual form of escapism. We don't have to face our ugly selves. We don't have to discipline them. We don't have to take any steps at all. We're going to be changed in an instant. Suddenly we're going to wake up the next morning different people. Has it ever happened? Has it? Never. Never. It has so happened that in a moment of time someone has seen and what they have seen has meant that something has happened in the, the deepest level of their being which is forever. That's what we all long for. But we get mixed up. And in our getting mixed up we go over into error. So that what we're looking for is something that will be a substitute for the cross. Will be a bypassing of Calvary. If I can put it this way, Pentecost without Calvary. You can't have it, dear child of God. You just can't have it. There is a Pentecost. A true Pentecost. A real Pentecost. And if we don't have Pentecost, we can do nothing. But that Pentecost lies through Calvary. When you lose your life, you gain something. When it's on that level, what you gain is forever. It's genuine. Oh my, how it would settle things for us. We want homes. We want enlargement. We want this. We want that. We want the other. Today we've been asked to take two boys from tragic backgrounds and can't do it. Tragic. Some of us have been asking the Lord to provide us with homes and so on that we can help for ages. Now, my dear friend, don't you think sometimes at the root of the problem is just this, we're not prepared to lose our lives? Right down at the heart of the whole thing lies this simple little issue. But it is a tremendous issue. Are we prepared to lose our lives? Because that's what it means. God can't give us these places. Why? Why can't he give it to us? Because he knows that we, we have romantic ideas. It's only when a person loses their life, really loses it, they can be safe in the service of God. They can become a doormat. <laughs> they can be used here, sent there, brought back here, overlooked, not thanked, and all the rest of it. But they go through and on. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt them. But they go on. It's the key. We love to find scapegoats for things you know. 
Always there's someone else who's a scapegoat, something else, some circumstance, something. But my dear friend, in the end, all the thing comes back to you and me. That's where the scapegoat is. Well, now then, let's close there and say that, uh, you know, the Lord Jesus encourages us at the end of these few verses with, a, with, with these words that we normally apply to, an, to unsaved people in an evangelistic service. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul or life? What will a man give in exchange for his life? Why do you think the Lord said this here? I tell you why. He wanted to encourage us. He wanted to say, now think. If you gain the whole world and lose your kingship, what have you really gained? One day when the objective is secured, one day when the purpose is fulfilled, what have you gained? You held on to your little, miserable, ugly, joyless life. You hung on to it tenaciously. What have you gained? What will a man give in exchange? Some silly little problem that's holding us back. We won't let go. We're exchanging something, and the Lord's seeking to encourage us, saying, What shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world? Every Christian knows that. But do we? Every Christian says, ah, marvellous evangelistic material. But what about you and me? If we really believed it, we could let go. It's so simple. And so it comes to the end when the Lord says that in the end, he's coming. He will come with his angels. He will repay everyone. So... If you've lost your life, there will be a life given. If you've gone the way of the cross, there will be a crown. If you have been burnt on the altar, there will be a throne. It's very simple. And it is as if the Lord says to you and to me, what I call you to do, I myself have done. I don't ask you to walk a path unknown to me. I myself have trod this path. I myself have let go. And he calls on you and me to follow him. It is all contained in two words in verse 24, two phrases. If any man will... Come after me. Let him follow. If any man will come after me, let him <coughs> deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. Follow him? Follow him? Yes, because you are walking in his steps. This is the way he went. He went to the cross. He went into the grave. He went through Calvary. Follow me. That's the way to the throne. May God help us. Really help us. That we follow him. 
right through to the third. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we all long that one day we shall really be in everything thou hast ever desired for thy people. But Lord, thou knowest there is a price, there is a cost. We pray, dear Lord, that thou wouldst help every single one of us to be those who not only understand that way, but who by thy grace go that way. We want to be filled with thy spirit. We want to be empowered by thy spirit. We want the Lord Jesus to be manifested in us, not only personally, but corporately. O oh Lord, thou knowest the issues in all our lives. We pray that thou wouldst bring us to the place where we let go, so that we discover. We let go of our own life and our own things and find thee. Lord, help us. We commit ourselves to thee. We need thy help and thy grace in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.